Morning, everybody. Good to be together today. We're looking... Well, let me just say one comment. We um, put, uh, Mark just mentioned about coming into London and seeing the trees green. It just reminded me that uh, he's at camp next week and um, some other people are at camp next week. And uh, no doubt they'll say something about that. But uh, we used to do camps years ago and the cook in many of those camps, her name was Teresa Green, which I thought was quite interesting for a, a girl's name. Teresa Green, she was. But having said that, that's nothing whatsoever to do with what we're talking about from Ephesians today. I just want to say this, that we've been thinking over these past few weeks uh, on the subject of prayer. And uh, we've taken mostly to do with, the, uh, most of our uh, thinking has been regarding the Lord's Prayer. And then last week, John 17, in the last, um, uh, last week we looked at John 17, Jesus' Prayer. And now we have this passage from Paul who prays for the Ephesian church. I want to just say this. Prayer is difficult. It is tough. This is not to do with the passage. I'll come to that in just a moment. But prayer is tough and it's difficult. And there are a lot of things about prayer that we don't fully understand. Yet we're called to pray. And as we gather, one of the things that we do as a gathered church is to pray. It's not that I come and bring my ideas of what I want to pray about or my particular personal needs, but we're coming as the gathered church. The people who have responsibility in leading our worship have a tremendously important responsibility. And the people who lead us in prayer have a great responsibility for they're not there to pray what they want to pray. They're there to be the voice piece for the gathered church. So that as we gather together, we are lifting our hearts before Almighty God and the person who is speaking is simply the voice for all of us. That is a great responsibility. And it takes, that's why I think it should be, the prayer time should be well prepared. That we should think carefully about how we're going to lead the time of prayer. When we meet as a church at a prayer meeting, that's a different matter. But as we gather in God's presence, the gathered church to worship together, we are together with one voice lifting our hearts to God in praise and worship and prayer. So pray for those who have the responsibility for praying. Pray for those who have the responsibility for leading worship, as well as the speaker. The speaker needs it, of course. But for those who have the responsibility for leading us in worship, for the same applies to our worship. As we gather, it's not me just singing my praise or you just singing your praise, though we do that, of course. But together, we are being drawn together for the very purpose for which we are saved, that we might be for the praise of his glory as a gathered church. And I think that gives great dignity and great responsibility to those who lead us as we meet together for worship. So pray for all of those who have responsibilities in that area. Now we're turning to Ephesians chapter 3 and the passage that, well, let's put it on the screen in front of us. There it is on the screen. I don't know whether you can read it at that distance, but this is the passage that we're looking at. It's a wonderful passage and it comes as a transition between the first part of Ephesians and the last part of Ephesians. It's the transition between the first part, which is mainly to do with our uh, Christian doctrine, our beliefs, 
and the second part which is to do with our behavior. And the prayer comes as a transition between our beliefs and our behavior, between the doctrine and, and the duty, between the invisible and the visible, between the foundations and the superstructure on which it is built. It's the, it's the link between the exposition of chapters 1 to 3 and the exhibition of chapters 4 to 6. So it comes in the middle there. Now that's of very great importance because it reminds us that knowing the truth is not sufficient. Actually doing the truth is what is important. Practicing the truth. Of course we can't practice the truth unless we know the truth, but truth, knowing the truth itself is not sufficient. Today, solid foundations on which we lived and built our lives seem to be crumbling all the time. At human level, I think the outlook for children is very bleak. We should pray for our children because it's not like when we, or put, let me speak about myself, when I grew up, uh, you know, there's that story, it's a true story, it was in the paper um, some, well, a couple, few years ago now, of a, of a man in the United States in a 45-story tower block. He was the janitor, the caretaker of the place. And he was doing a, a construction job at home in his spare time as well. And every day, he took a couple of bricks from down in the basement of this tower block, put them in his bag, took them home. And over a year, he gathered enough bricks to build the extension that he was building at home. But the tower block collapsed. And they found out what had happened. And he was, of course, charged eventually. When you put in the foundations, it grows strong, the building grows strong. And let me mention, mention two things that happen when you put in these solid foundations. Firstly, your conscience will be so well informed, <coughs> and so well programmed, if you like, that you know how to behave, how to react as a Christian. For our children today, those foundations are being or have been removed and are being at alarming speed. You know, the Bible is not a book in which we're meant to just turn up the appropriate verse for everything that happens and find what we're supposed to do. It, that's important in some places, but it's meant to teach our minds and instruct our hearts so that we have a biblical understanding of what we are to do. In the past, people, even non-Christian people, knew the basics in our country, even if they were not practicing Christians. So they behaved more or less like Christians should behave, not all the time, but they did more today. Today... People don't know the basics, and so they're behaving more or less like pagans. But the Bible is given so that we might be changed in our thinking. That's a different subject, but a change in our thinking so that our manner of life, our thinking, consideration, the things that are important to us become biblical. That's one thing. The other thing is, when I, only when I have adequately laid the foundation will I be able to help other people. But that's just by way of introduction. And it's this that Paul is talking about. The practice, the beliefs, need to be put into practice. And the link between the two is our praying. We need to say, Lord, you have said this. I want to do it. And will you please help me to do it? My praying about the truth helps me to apply it in my behavior. Simple, isn't it? 
That's this comes between the, be the, the belief and the, and the behavior, though of course there's some of each in both of them. So when Paul says, for this reason, I pray for you, we need to say, well, what reason is he talking about? That's verse, in, that's in, uh, in uh, verse, whatever it is, 14. For this reason. What is the reason he's talking about? Well, of course, first of all, he's talking about chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 1 to 3 are full of all that God has done for us in Jesus. He speaks in chapter 1, he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 2, he's brought us from death to life and put us in a new family. Chapter 3, he's reconciled us to God and to each other. Chapter 4, he's made us, uh, uh, and again in chapter Three, he's made us heirs of promises. So what does Paul say when he says, for this reason, he's referring to all those fantastic things, marvelous things that God has done for us. He says, when I see what God has done, then I'll pray for you. And when we see what God has done, that's why we study the Bible, so that we can see what God has done. And then we say, that's what I want. And I pray that God will enable me to apply it in my life. That's what he's talking about here. But that's not the only thing. That's chapters 1 to 3. The second part is he prays because of all that God is doing in the heavenly realms. Look at, look at verse uh, 10. Verse 10, he says this. His intent was, God's intent was, that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. Therefore, he says, I pray for you. For that reason, I, ne I kneel before you. We don't know fully all that God's intention is, what he's doing, and so on. But Paul says, in the light that God has an intention to, to speak to all the heavenly hosts, I pray for you. You know, if we don't know what God is doing, if we don't study God's word and get to grips with what God's word says, everything will be weak and feeble. Studying the Bible becomes very confusing, simply a collection of random bits and pieces and stories from all over the place. We have no idea how they relate to one another unless we read God's word. Secondly, we end up with no sense of direction. We don't know where we're headed. And thirdly, it all becomes very boring. But like, I mean, it's like children's dot-to-dot -dot books. You remember those dot-to-dot -dot books with children? You get this picture and it's got numbers all over it, little dots and numbers by them, and there's maybe an eye in the corner or a wheel down here. And you don't know what it is, and you join the dots up until eventually the thing comes to life and you see who it is. In fact, they, they've, I can see that they're, they're coming back for adults with thousands of dots. And you buy the sheets get them on the internet or buy them and they're quite big and so confusing with all those dots. But as you gradually join, join all the dots up, you begin to get the big picture. Without the numbers, the whole thing is meaningless. You join this dot to that one and that one to that one. You end up with mess. Nothing is visible. Discovering what God's intention is in the Christian life, the whole thing becomes meaningful. Without it, it's meaningless. 
So what was God's intention that Paul is praying about for which he bows his knee? What was God's intention? Here it is. His intention was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. Now, the word manifold there, the original meaning of that word is multicolored, many varied. The manifold wisdom of God. Our knowledge of the rulers in the heavenly realms is very scanty. We don't know a lot about them. We don't know what's going on in the heavenly realms very much. I mentioned that the other day at the uh, going deeper. But what exactly those spiritual forces are in detail, we don't know. That's another study, and we can talk about it some other time maybe. But the important thing for us to note today is that God has chosen me, he's chosen you, to speak to those angelic powers, whether they're good or evil angelic powers. He's chosen us to speak to those people, those beings. And when he speaks to them, he reveals through us his manifold wisdom, his multicolored wisdom. That's amazing. Have you ever thought, it's incredible that he's chosen us as his visual aid in the whole universe. When God looked around the universe at all the stars and the planets he's made and the galaxies and then the microscopic world which is so small and intricate and just as intricate as the planets and so on. When he looked around it all and then at heavens and the complexities there and so on. I mean, you watch programs like The Blue Planet, you think how marvelous it all is. When God looked through all of those things, not one of them were the things that he chose to demonstrate his wisdom to all these angelic beings. He chose you. He chose me. I think that's amazing that God has chosen us. And notice what he says. He, what he chose the church, us in the church, to teach them, in verse 10, his wisdom. His wisdom, verse 10. And secondly, in verse 11, his eternal purpose. That's what God's doing. He's teaching his wisdom to the heavenly realms and authorities, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And he's pointing to you and say, say, see? using you as his visual aid. Not only his wisdom, but his eternal purposes. That's what God's doing with us. And it's, notice, it's an eternal project. He says it's through all eternity. He's at work in us. Paul has already said in chapter 2, having spoken about the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of the, of the air, he said, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And why did he do that? in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. So this teaching project will go on into eternity, but it starts here and now. It's going on today through you and me. His intention was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom, the multicolored wisdom, the many-faceted wisdom of God should be made known. I wonder if you've ever had to appear in public, do uh, something or other, and when you had to appear in public, on show in some way. Some people have the responsibility of speaking in public before crowds of people. Maybe you've been for an interview for a job. You are going to be on wedding pictures and so on. 
whatever it might be, some situation where you were on show, or perhaps your home was on show, or an important guest was coming to your home. Each of those situations, there's a right and proper tendency to prepare. You get your hair cut and set, or if you're a female, that is. You buy the right dress, buy the females. You do your makeup, anybody. Choose the right jacket, or whatever it might be that you're wearing and so on. We, many years ago, BBC came to do Songs of Praise from Gloucester Cathedral and they asked to interview me. And I was one of those interviewed and chose a song and so on. And uh, the time came when they came to film it all. And uh, they said they'd come to our house, not where we're living now, but the house, other house in Hucklecote, came to, to film in our house. And so we knew when they were coming and uh, the outside broadcast van pulled up outside, they came out, big lights set up on the streets and so on and, and all the neighbours, one on the earth was going on, etc., etc. Uh, well, Hazel, in getting ready for it, she'd scrubbed and cleaned the sitting room and so on. And all the junk had been stuck in my little office, which was about two yards by, well, by three, something about that size, very tiny, full of my stuff, and it was jam-packed, but all this stuff was push it, put into it and so on. Anyway, they eventually came and they turned up. They wanted me to drive into the drive and they filmed me doing it, and then they said, we'll go inside and, and give you a brief interview. They walked into the house and we showed them into the lounge, and they said, uh, what other rooms have you got? Have you got a study somewhere? <laughs> and so he said, well, it's just next door. So we looked in it and he said, we'll film in here. And took the cameras, these big burly men with their cameras and you know, stands and, uh, and microphones and everything. And they walked into my little study and they carried out bookcases full of books and put them in the hallway and so on just to make enough space for their cameras and so on. They filmed there. We hadn't prepared at all. But the tendency, right tendency, that's nothing to do with this, but the right tendency is to prepare, to prepare. Because you're on show, you're going to be on show. And Paul says, I pray for you because of what God's going to do. I'm praying for you and I'm thankful that he did pray for them. And God, uh, we sh under God, we should be praying for each other. We need it. We need to pray for each other because we're on show. We're center stage now and will be through all eternity. It's interesting because Paul goes on to say, for this reason, I kneel, I kneel, verse 14. That's interesting because the Jews, generally speaking, for prayer, did not kneel. You read them in the scriptures, they walked, they stood, they stood with their hands raised and so on. But there are passages where kneeling or being prostrate on the ground is, was the practice. But those times where they kneel and are prostrate, those are times of great intensity in prayer. When the burden of prayer was so great. And that's what Paul says here. Because you're going to be on show, you're, I, I'm praying for you with burning intensity in my prayer. Praying for you. This is no casual prayer from Paul. Nor should it be casual for us. Nothing matters as much that ne other than now and through all eternity, the eternal wisdom of God will be dem demonstrated in you and in me. Think about it. Paul is not saying that in the church, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms will see how wise God has been in saving me. No, he's saying that in the church, the multifaceted, multicolored wisdom of God the manifold wisdom of God may be seen. 
Actually, the word mean, the translated is difficult to translate. I'm told it means much multicolored wisdom of God. Wisdom in every aspect. Wisdom from every angle. It's not just that God is wise, but that in every aspect of his wisdom, it is being demonstrated in us. Now, I suggest to you that that's nonsense. It's bad enough to suggest that any aspect of God's wisdom can be seen in me. But to suggest that every aspect of his wisdom, his multicolored, multifarious wisdom, can be seen in me, that just doesn't make sense. And I, I think that you would agree with me that there's only one person through whom that is possible. And that's not me. It's the one of whom Scripture says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the one who is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1 verse 17. He is the one in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2 verse 9. In him, yes. In me, no. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. Colossians 2 verse uh, 7. It simply cannot make sense to say that in us, in me, in you, all the mass multifaceted wisdom of God can be seen. That does not make sense. But Paul's a realist. He knows that's ridiculously impossible. And for that reason, the heart of his prayer and the first thing he prays about must be that the only way it's possible for that to be seen in me is if Christ himself were to live in me. So that's what he prays. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If God wants to demonstrate his wisdom to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms through all eternity in every aspect of his wisdom, and I can't possibly do that, then it can only work if Christ himself dwells in me and is seen in me. Because he's the one in whom is the hope of glory. And Paul says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Jesus said he will come and take up abode in you. By the way, this is the only place in Scripture where it talks about Christ living in your heart. It's a phrase we use all the time, don't we? Asking Jesus into your heart and so on. It's the only time it talks about it here, though it does talk about Christ living in me. Paul is talking here about Christians, and he's saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. We tend to use that sort of language when we're talking to non-Christians, but here he's talking about Christians. So let me ask you in a form of a question. Does Christ dwell in your heart by faith? Is he resident there? The heart, seat of our emotions, the seat of our feelings, our motivations, is that where Christ dwells? The things that motivate us, the things that we feel the things that we're enthusiastic about. You know, sometimes we have somebody come to your house and you sit them in the sitting room and say, now sit there, sit there, and please make yourself at home. Actually, that's the last thing you want them to do. You don't want them to go upstairs and start rifling through your drawers and pulling stuff out your cupboards and then say, well, I feel like a little sleep. I get into this bed and you get in that bed and so on. You, you don't expect them to really make themselves at home, although that's what you say. That's the last thing that you, you want. But here, there's another point. We are to have Christ in our hearts to make his home there so that there is no closed door for him, no closed drawer for him. 
And when he says it, Paul uses the word that Christ may dwell in your heart. And in Greek, there are two words for dwell. One means a temporary residence. Another means a permanent residence. And the one he uses here is permanent. He wants to take up permanent residence so that he is at home and every door, every part of my life is open to him. So now we can ask three questions of this verse. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. First of all, who? That's the first thing. Who may dwell in our hearts? And the answer is, of course, Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. Jesus Christ. Now, you may think that's a rather infantile way of putting things. Have you got Jesus in your heart? We used to sing sentimental songs about it. Still do sometimes, I suppose, but we used to. I remember singing one that with Jesus in your heart, no discord can arise. He can make the saddest notes to harmonize. You know, very sentimental stuff in those sloppy sentimental stuff too. But we're not talking about that sloppy sentimentality. Verse 16, he says, he will strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And verse 17, he speaks about Christ in your heart. In other words, the spirits taking up residence in my life and Christ taking up residence in my heart are the same thing. John 14, Jesus puts it like this. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. That's the spirit. Then in verse 18 of the same chapter, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's Jesus. Then verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and will come to him. That's the father. So in that chapter, there's the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, each of which is spoken of as coming into our life to taking up residence in our hearts. The whole trinity involved. Can't have a relationship with one without the other. So who comes? Jesus Christ. Secondly, where does he come? Well, in your heart. The central place, we speak about the heart of the matter, means the very core. The core of our being is where he takes up residence. The one place we cannot do without. I remember here watching Tommy Cooper on television once and he started that song, I left my heart in San Francisco and then collapsed on the floor in, 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 as a joke. <laughs> We can't do without our heart. We can't do without our heart. By the way, he died on stage, so it wasn't that time. It was another time. But we can't do with our heart. It means the very center. It means the, the, the physically he's at the center. The things I do. Psychologically he's at the center. He's, the things I feel. The things that motivate me. Spiritually he's at the center. The things I value most. The things I worship. Your inner being, verse 16, he says. It's in verse 16, he talks about it as our inner being. Trouble with us is that we can end up being peripheral Christians. Everything's on the outside. Like the Pharisees who Jesus says, come to me with their mouth but their lips and their lips but their heart is far from me. That's what Jesus said. J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop of Liverpool, said this, the bended knee, the bowed head, the loud amen, the daily chapter, the regular attendance at the Lord's table, they are all useless and unprofitable unless Christ is at the center. That's what we're talking about here. It's like a Copernic Copernican revolution with this 
that we don't, the sun does not ro uh, rotate around us. The sun is the center, and you can now spell the S-O-N as well as S-U-N. The sun should be at the center of our being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So well, who is it? Jesus Christ. Where? In our hearts. And then the third thing is how? By faith. Faith, of course, is the key to the family of God. It unlocks a whole new world. I read a story, and you probably saw it about two years ago, about a girl who was, uh, it had come to light that she had been brought up. She was in her 20s. She'd been brought up in an attic, and she had never left that attic. She knew nothing else apart from that little attic where she'd been, uh, been kept. She was stunted in growth physically, physically, emotionally, and in every way, socially and so on. But she thought that life was fine. She thought it was okay until one day, rather frightened, she was led out into a whole new world. Spiritually speaking, the key that unlocks the door is faith. That key opens us to a whole new world. And we should beware of being plateaued Christians where we get to a certain level and we think we've arrived. Now, let's just step back for a second. Look at the logic of Paul in this. God's intention was to show his wisdom to the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, his manifold wisdom. For that reason, Paul prays fervently for them. But it's impossible for us to show the manifold wisdom of God. Only Christ can do that. So he prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. But it's impossible, we can even go further, it's impossible for Christ to dwell in us because of our weaknesses. How can Christ dwell in me? How can Christ dwell in you? I'm so weak and feeble, so inactive, so unchristlike. His burning intensity, the burning intensity of his holiness would destroy me. How can Christ live in my heart? And so Paul goes on to say, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So his prayer was that there might be strong enough for this to actually happen, what we've been talking about, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. We could never be strong enough in ourselves. We may feel weak every single day and so unworthy, etc. And we do say those things. But God gives us his spirit that we might be strengthened, not so that we might feel strong, but that we might be strengthened so that Christ can live in our hearts by faith. He gives us power in our inner being. And take the logic one step further. I am incapable of finding enough strength. Paul says at the end of Romans 7, uh, 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. When I was at school, our games master um, damaged his back and he was off work for several terms. A whole year, I think it was. He was a big ex-army gym instructor. But anyway, he was off for a year. And so they got another army PE teacher to come and lead us. <laughs> and that, but, um, he, he, he didn't know much about um, rings and trapeze and, and uh, all the other things that we did, you know, the horizontal bar, all the other, he didn't know much about that. But he, he, was, he was into boxing. So he thought we'd, he'd introduce boxing for us. So we went into boxing for a year. 
None of us had done it before, but there were one or two who were very good at it. And one or two, as a result of it, entered various competitions and so on. And there was one fight that was coming up, and one of the boys who was a bit bigger than I was, but in my year, um, he, he was pretty good at boxing, and so he was entered for this, and the, the, the instructor was teaching him, saying, no, you can't go into it yet. You can't go into it yet. You're not ready yet. You're not ready. And he, he did lots of exercises, week by week, night by night, training him and so on, until eventually he said, no, you're not ready, but a few weeks later he says, now you're ready. And any boxer does that. You know, their chest expands from 46 to 54. They've got uh, bi- arms, uh, biceps like uh, thighs, you know, huge, powerful people. And then this instructor says, now I think you're ready. That's getting yourself ready. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying, it's impossible for you to get ready. Don't try it. It's impossible. It is out of his glorious riches he strengthens you. His, not yours. Out of his glorious riches he strengthens you. Verse 16. So here's the line. God's intention was to show his wisdom to all the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms through all eternity. That's only possible in Christ. So he prays that we might have Christ. But we're too weak to have Christ. So he prays for us to be strengthened by his spirit. But we don't have what it takes to be strengthened. So he gives it to us out of his glorious riches. You see, Paul's so logical in his praying and thinking. That's prayer number one. Then Paul goes on to a second prayer. And by the way, much brief, more briefly. Here's prayer number two. First one is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's prayer number two. He prays that they might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Verse 19, second half. That's straight out of cloud cuckoo land. It's Alice in Wonderland territory. Alice was talked about believing six impossible things before breakfast every day. It's one of those things. I mean, that is impossible. How on earth can we be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? That is impossible. You might say, if only. But you and I know it's impossible. Yet that's what he prays for. To think of the fullness of his his grace, the fullness of his perfection, the fullness of his holiness, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's impossible. It's even possible for us to contemplate without the power of God. So he prays in verse 16, that the Spirit may strengthen you with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And now he prays in verse 18 to know God's power so that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So God's power enables God's fullness to be demonstrated in us. And he tells us then three things to note. It's only possible if we're rooted and established, that's verse 17, rooted and established in love. Rooted is a horticultural term, of course, deep roots, trees are green. And established, that's laying foundations on which the building is built. First thing, it's only possible if we're rooted and established in love. Secondly, it's only possible together with all the saints. That's verse 18. I don't know the exact figures, but they say there are about 2 billion Christians in the world today. Maybe 500 million 
true believers. Others, it's more a cultural thing. I don't know how many there are exactly. Of course, those figures may be well out, but you know what I'm saying. Past generations, maybe altogether two billion people have been Christians in the past and today. In fact, more than half the people who've ever lived are living today. However much you think you know, you only know one two hundred, one two billionth of the love of God. Because it's together with all the saints that we comprehend the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of the love of God. You only know your part. The person sitting next to you only knows her part. The person sitting in front of you knows their part. I know my part. It's together with all the saints that we know. That's why corporate worship is so important because we bring together what we know. And uh, when we do come together, we shall know how wide, long, deep, and high is the love of God. Wide enough to encompass all. Long enough to reach to eternity. Deep enough to reach the most degraded. High enough to exalt to heaven. And then he says in verse 19, this is something, this love is love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, it, you can't know this love that you know. That you might know something that surpasses Knowledge. It's beyond our knowledge, and yet we can know it. It's a paradox, isn't it? Now, does this all blow your mind? To think that God, knowing all my weaknesses and greed and sinfulness and weaknesses and so on, the bias of my mixed emotions, the fickleness of my mind, the stupidity of my being, should want to demonstrate anything about him, let alone the multicolored wisdom of God. And to put in me the very person of Christ, his lovely son, in whom dwelt all the fullness of God in bodily form. Or to suggest that I can know the unknowable, the utmost extremes of the love of God in Christ. And to suggest that I might be filled right up to the very fullness of God. Can you imagine it? You answer no. We say that's impossible. An impossible thing. So listen to how Paul f finishes. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. He is able to do it. See the word able there. Because he's not dead or idle or incompetent. He's able to do it. He's able to do what we ask. Because he answers prayer. He's able to do what we ask or imagine. Or think. For that word. Often we imagine what we dare not ask for. He's able to do all that we ask or imagine. He's able to do it all. There's no limit. He's able to do more than all we ask or imagine or think. The word is super, which we get our word super. More than. His abilities are beyond our thinking. He's able to do much more. Doesn't give it out in limited handfuls. And he's, enabled, he's able to do immeasurably more, vastly. Actually, it's vastly more than more, is what it actually literally says. Vastly more than more. 
Paul actually made up a word. Immeasurably much more is what God is able to do. Meaning simply there are no limits to what God can do. And it's according to his power that's at work in us. Now how does that make you feel? Doesn't that put some strength into you? Stiffens our backbone, as they would say. Make you lift your head a little bit higher. That's what God's doing. In the heavenly realms, I don't know what's going on, but he's doing it through me in the heavenly realms. And it's going to go on through all eternity. No wonder Paul concludes with this. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And let me just say, don't forget, this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Is this how you pray? Is this how you pray for others? Is your praying steeped in the logic of Scripture? Not flowery language. Is it dealing with the depths and the concepts that Scripture teaches us because you've soaked yourself in it? That's how Paul prayed. And we can take this as an example of how we should pray it too. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.